0: So I'm excited about 1 Timothy, but I'm not excited about this stupid head cold. So uh, just forewarning, everything on the page looks blurry, and um, I don't need to read this morning or anything. So uh, if there is anything beneficial, it is completely outside of my abilities this morning. Uh, so this morning we're going to begin in 1 Timothy, the first of what's called the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus, they are written to individuals. They are written to leaders of churches, those with with pastoral shepherding charges, as Brett alluded to, and they're relevant in every age, and I would argue especially in our age. Because since the beginning of of Christendom, we're probably in the age of the lowest ecclesiology in the church's history. So if you're not familiar with the word, it's a theological term, uh, which means the study of or pertaining to the church. There are plenty of churches, just in downtown Sanford alone, there's at least 60, um, and they may be as many as five, maybe hundreds of people. Many people have attended a church, but what what I mean by low ecclesiology is, yeah, I understand what a church is. Even people who attend church every week think that it's just attending. We go to church that the rest of my life is divorced from the things of God and the people of God, and when I come here, I put on my holy face and my holy clothes and hope that God is pleased with me. This is not a biblical view of the church. This is our building. This is the church. And I think for many people, that distinction is not clear. For many people, the church is just an institution that they have painted one way or another because of their experiences, that they have thrown out completely because the church is full of hypocrites and sinners, and yes, it is. But it's sad how many times I talk to Christians, people who profess Christ, who have such a low view of the church. There is no warmth in their heart for the blood-bought sheep. There is no... Love for the people of God. There is no kindred communion in Christ. We've made it so easy to come and go, to criticize and leave, to go in and unload all of your baggage, drop a bomb, and then walk out of the door when everyone else doesn't respond the way you think that they should. This, unfortunately, is the modern church, and it's, it's become normalized, And so often the church is just an institution. It's just a building, it's just another club, it's just another thing that you do. There is no transcendent spiritual reality that is going on in the people of God gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Worst of all are those inside the church who are bitter and divisive and disruptive who want to bring everyone else into their misery, and who create instability with the gathered flock. This is the occasion of 1 Timothy. This is why Paul is writing. He is writing to young Timothy in order to encourage him to continue in steadfast guidance and teaching and protection amongst unruly sheep, and the ravenous wolves within the body. And so Paul is not concerned about himself or his own name. Paul ministered in Ephesus for two years, three years. And now he's writing from a distance. But he cares about the flock. He cares about the bride of Christ and her unity and her purity. Wise and selfless pastors are not concerned about themselves and they're thinking beyond their tenure. So many pastors, sadly, are so consumed with numbers and external things and everyone knowing how great they are that the lives and hearts of the people could be in shambles as long as everything looks good on the surface. This is, this is what Paul is addressing. So this morning, I want you to keep in mind Christ died for his sheep. Paul gave his life for her, for the sheep, for the church. Timothy is committed to love and serve her. What about us? How do we view her, especially coming off of Proverbs 31? And thinking about the excellent wife, that Christ came, that the orphan, the prostitute, the widow would have spotless linen wedding garments, would be set aside for him, would be presented to him in splendor. And so this will be good for all of us as we look at the nature and state of the church in Paul's day and in in our day. Uh, So let's read verses one through two, and uh, then we will pray. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, you are our Savior. You are our Father. Without you, we are lost. There is no hope. This is not an empty, universal fatherhood in a generic sense. This is a specific, particular fatherhood. You know those who are yours. You have prepared a people that you present to your son. You know us by name, you know the hairs on our heads. You know the sins we have committed, the sins we are still storing up in our hearts, and the sins we will commit, yet you have forgiven all of them because you placed them on your Son. Lord, how could we ever respond in gratitude enough? How could we ever give you the praise that you deserve? We are feeble. We are easily led astray. We are easily deceived. We are in desperate need of a shepherd. We would wander off a cliff, walk away from food if you did not send your son to draw us back to the fold. We praise you for your work of redemption. We praise you for your fold. And may we as your church going through a book about the church. May we be an excellent bride who is faithful and pure and true and loving and truthful and patient and kind because we belong to our Savior, the Shepherd. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So as you notice, we're covering two verses Just the introduction, so doing two verses at a time. It should take us about two years to get through 1 Timothy. Uh, We'll move a little faster than that after this. But um, I do want to spend a little bit of time in the introduction, and I'm going to use the introduction as an overview for the whole book. Um, So when you write a letter in the Greco-Roman times, there was a standard letter format, which is what most of the New Testament epistles follow. There was an introductory greeting, there was the body, and there was a conclusion and the greetings were fairly formal. If you read letters from antiquity, it was usually to the most illustrious, uh, divinely a- a- appointed whoever who's in this, th- this high place, your humble and obedient servant writes you X, Y, Z. These are how these, these letters w- would sound. Um, a, very, uh, a very formalized version of our, like our, our, our Valentine's cards. You know, it's like, to Billy from Susie with love kind of a thing. Um, And there was was a lot of graciousness and uh, pleasantries. But what Paul does is he takes this this formula and he turns each of his introductions into a a, a theological statement in and of themselves. And the the greetings are so rich, we can tend to, to breeze right by them because we've just thrown out greetings. Our greetings are like, sup, or hey, or if we give a greeting at all. We don't even, we don't even look at the, the, uh, the beginning. We just skip past it. And I think that's trained into our brains. So when we open up a letter from Scripture, and an epistle, we just skip past, oh, that's, that's the, the opening credits. I don't need to read that. Yes, you do. And we're going to read that this morning. We're going to dig into that, and I'll show you how that will help us understand the entire letter. So, uh, number one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We're not going to start with the first word. We're going to start with the source. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. By the command, this word speaks of a royal commission. He is commissioned by God, our Savior. He did not appoint himself apostle. The risen Jesus Christ Christ, appeared to him, taught him in the wilderness for three years, and gave him a ministry to the Gentiles. He commanded him. He commissioned him. He sent him. Paul was never called to pastor a church, but he was called to encourage, support, and train pastors in local churches. And so I want you to see something that he does here. He begins with the source. He starts with his name, But it doesn't begin with him. It begins with the the, uh, command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. If you read these two verses, you notice that there's a parallel here. He opens and closes with a similar phrase. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God the Savior, God the Father. Christ Jesus our hope, Christ Jesus our Lord. He is drawing a connection between these two ideas that God is our savior, God is our father. Christ is our hope, Christ is our Lord. These are not two separate ideas, these are unified ideas. In Paul's mind there is no separation between the work of God Almighty and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are one in purpose, they are one in recognition, they are one in position. Paul is training them from the very beginning to be steeped in Trinitarian theology. He is training them from the very beginning that Jesus is not something apart from God. Jesus did not come on his own. Jesus' ministry did not begin in, in Galilee and end on the cross. It began in eternity and continues into eternity. He is synonymous with the true and living God. They are to see him, see them as one. And all things to Paul are from the triune God. All things to Timothy and to the church are from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he is the only Lord and the only hope of the church. So some of you may be struck by the phrase, by the command of God our Savior. It's one of the few times that phrase appears. Because normally we hear Christ Jesus our Savior. Who saved us, God or Jesus? Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And we normally associate salvation with the Son, and it is true. Salvation was accomplished by the Son, but it is only because it was the will, plan, and covenant of redemption from the Father that sent the Son incarnate to take on flesh and walk among us, to minister in the Spirit so that he would call a people to himself. And this is important considering how he saves his people and the promises he gave to his people hundreds of years before. Because there are many messianic allusions to what type of Savior would come. And one of them relates directly to the pastoral charge of our letter. So, the word pastor, sheep, shepherd, flock, tend, nothing related to, past, to that group of words, appears in 1 Timothy. But the idea is all throughout it. And First and Timothy and the idea of a pastoral charge, a shepherding charge, is consistent throughout all of Scripture. And it's a biblical picture we're familiar with. The people of God have been associated with sheep since Abel. They have always been the herdsmen when they went into Egypt, when they are in the wilderness. David as a shepherd. And this picture Jesus picks up on, and we're going to pick on a lot of that. So it's the same word grouping. Shepherd, pastor, um, where we get the word pasture from. This is where the sheep graze. So the old Latin term, pastor, is what a shepherd is comes from a root word that means the one who makes you, makes feed. The pastor is the one who, who not helps you feed, makes you eat. There's a job of someone who directs and cares for the sheep so that they are sustained and they are fed. One who causes to eat. But here's the problem with sheep. They're not really smart creatures. So I, I, I preached on Psalm 23 when I was first here. She's not here anymore, so I can say this. Um, but it was a woman who grew up with sheep, and I was talking about how stupid sheep was, and she was so offended. She got so mad at me. She's like, they're not, you know, my sheep are so sweet. My sheep aren't dumb. I was like, yeah, sure. Um, but they are. They will eat themselves right away from, from, from food. They will, they will get out of a ditch and fall into the ditch. you Have ever seen that meme? It is hilarious. The sheep that jumps out, walks on its own for two seconds and jumps back in. That's us. They will, they will feed themselves right off a cliff. They will, they, will, they will go right up to a wolf if they're not warned. Like they're, they're not smart creatures. So they need shepherds. They always have. And this has been God's design from the beginning. He has put leaders over his, his people. But there's a problem. Throughout most of Israel's history, they had terrible shepherds. Now, we read Ezekiel 34 earlier, but I want to go back there. And if you remember what we read, and I know it was... Almost an hour ago, so you can't be, possibly be expected to remember that. But we read from Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 is right after the, the watchman in Ezekiel 33. Right before the, the New Covenant language of Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. God is doing something in his people. He is promising to do things in his people, but there's a problem. He's set up shepherds. There are leaders over the people, the priests, the elders. They're feeding themselves. He says in verses 1 and 2, and really expands on that all the way down to verse 10. So here's the problem. What's the problem with, with sheep? They need a shepherd. What's the problem with shepherds? They're also sheep. And they are wicked. And they are evil. And they're selfish. And they're fallen. And they only, eventually you give someone power in their own strength, it will corrupt them. And they will feed themselves, and they will starve the sheep. And they took for granted that God brought them out of, the, out of the slavery of Egypt and gave them peace and prosperity, and they got fat and happy while God's sheep starved. So what does a good and loving and gracious God do? Verse 11, behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, and when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Same idea, verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the sprayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. If you were in our Wednesday night Bible study, I would ask you, what are the repeated words? I, 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 I. That is God our Savior. You can't do it, so I will. Why are the repeated words important? Because if God emphasizes it, we should pay attention. If he's speaking and saying what he will do, God, our Savior, will become our shepherd because we, like sheep, have gone astray. But he has a particular shepherd in mind. Skip down. Verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord God, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace. This again is a promise of the new covenant that we've looked at the last couple weeks in Acts. Skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 30. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. What an amazing promise. There's one thing that doesn't add up. This can't be taken completely literally because David has been dead for 400 years. David is not being raised from the dead. David does not have an eternal throne himself, even though God made a covenant with him and promised one of your offspring will be on the throne for eternity. Bless you. That brings us to Christ Jesus. Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? He shows that Jesus comes from the line of David. He is the heir to the throne of Judah. He is a rightful inheritor of the power and kingdom of Israel. He is the hope and Lord of the sheep. He is the son of David. When the blind man calls out, son of David, I can't see. I need you. And his blindness he recognized in faith that the one prophesied, the one promised, had come. He is the shepherd, the promised shepherd, who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he tells us in Matthew 10. Isaiah 53, 6, we quickly up on the screen. Thank you, Connor, for the graphic, by the way. Isaiah 53, 6. No, we don't have it? All right, Isaiah 53, 53, 6. For all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, also, Micah chapter 5. If you don't know where Micah is, he's in the, the uh, minor prophets. Let's so keep moving from Ezekiel, Isaiah, to the right. Right after Jonah. Micah chapter 5. Look at the promise to the people of God. But you, O Bethlehem, should ring lots of bells for us. Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth to me, for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Who is coming forth is from days of old, from, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give up, uh, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he, the one born in Bethlehem, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What is the covenant of peace? The one born in Bethlehem, who will rule as shepherd in the strength of the Lord over the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Praise God for his promises. Jesus himself takes on this moniker in John 10. John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Isaiah 53 He's the suffering servant who lays down his life for the sheep that have gone astray. But he's also the confident and loving shepherd who brings them home. But this is not enough. He doesn't stop with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, if you are in this room. Gentiles are the other sheep. The other sheep from a different fold who will be brought into this fold. And what does he do? I must bring them also. I must bring them. I have no choice. They have been given to me. And they will listen to my voice. Praise God, he gives us ears to hear. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is how Christ views the church. Not just Israel. Those who didn't belong in the fold. All brought in, all given ears to hear, all have one shepherd unified in him. When Jesus appears to Peter after the resurrection... John 21, I have kept with me through all of my ministry. It rattles around in my brain week after week, month after month, year after year. What does he say to Peter on the shores of Galilee after he cooks him breakfast? Peter, do you love me? Of course you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You can just feel Peter's heart getting heavier every time. Tend my lambs. And a third time, and Peter's crushed because he denies him three times. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. What is Jesus saying here? Our love for Christ is directly related to our love for his sheep. This is Peter's charge. There, he went from fisherman, evangelist, to pastor, elder, he recognized that my love for Christ is laid out and my love for his sheep. That is how Christ measures our love. We are so devoted to him that anyone he loves, we love. That's the picture of the church. That's who the church should be. So, far, so often the church falls far short. But Peter, are these first Peter passages up there? 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter uh, 5. If not, you can, you can flip there. So much so that when Peter writes his, his letter to the dispersed Christians, he quotes Isaiah 53. Not there? Are any of my references there? There's only three references? We've got a lot more than that. All right. Uh, so 1 Peter 2.25. For you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is one shepherd. This is pastor and elder. These two terms we see synonymously. He's the one who oversees them. Now when he writes to the elders in chapter 5, flip over to chapter 5. Notice what he says. So this is Peter So I exhort, he could say, Peter the apostle, he says, Peter the elder among you, or to the elders as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. Pastors are not called to shepherd their sheep. They're called to shepherd Christ's sheep. Notice what he says to the elder, you are shepherds. That's why we don't have a separate office for elder here. There is no such thing as someone who is a businessman who does not have a heart for the sheep. And sadly, that is how many churches are run. How do you read Peter, the one who stood face to face with the risen Christ, who asked him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. When Peter gets a chance to speak to the elders of the church, what does he tell them? Shepherd the flock, elders, because the chief shepherd's coming back, and he wants, you to, know what you, he wants to know what you've done with what he's entrusted you with. So we must see the church, as the flock of God, members as the sheep. And we'll see this, we're going to use this analogy throughout the rest of the book. There are many under shepherds in many churches throughout many centuries, but there is one chief shepherd. We all serve under him, and it is God's design from the start. And we serve as sheep among sheep. And it's not flattering because we don't deserve the flattery. That's point one. (laughs) That's why we're only doing two verses. Point two. Now we get to Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Did Paul need to remind Timothy? Do you think Timothy forgot that Paul was an apostle? No. He's his son in the faith. He discipled and they spent years together. Why does he say Paul, an apostle? Why does he use a formal introduction to a young man who he invested in? Because if Paul has to give his credentials at the beginning of the letter, there's trouble in paradise. That's not for Timothy's sake. He is writing to Timothy, but he is writing for the sake of the church. Those who are divisive and disruptive within the church, they need to be reminded that Paul is commanded by God to instruct them in the gospel and also commanded by God to put order in the church. He ministered in Ephesus. Now he follows up as things begin to go awry a few years later. And this is a certainty within ministry. We're sinners. We are sheep. And we can keep peace and we can be fat and happy for only so long. And it usually doesn't last long. We like drama. We create drama. We create division. We look for reasons to point fingers at people who differ from us. We go after Everything, our hearts are idle factories, we we'll go after everything that would draw us away. And so now Paul is a concerned apostle writing to the young pastor, basically saying, Read this letter aloud from an apostle. And this is the purpose of the book, which we get in chapter 3. Chapter 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things. I, I wish they would always give us a purpose statement this clear. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, while I'm gone, while I'm not there, if you don't have apostolic authority, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's the church. Household of God, church of a living God, don't think you can hide what you're doing from Him. Pillar and buttress of truth, a fortress, a protection for God's people. But it is not disassociated from the mystery of the gospel of Christ. Verse 16 Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Why should the church be unified? Why should the church be orderly? Why should the church be devoted? Because he, he was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels, proclaimed from among the nations, believed in on the world, taken up from glory. Paul is given his direction from Christ to point people to Christ. So when he writes to Timothy, it is always back to Christ. And when Timothy ministers to the body, it is always back to Christ. This is every letter we read from divine inspiration to the human intention of the author, to the situation of the recipient for the application of the church. So here are the main issues we're going to deal with in the book of 1 Timothy. Are these on the screen? (laughs) Thank you. Okay, there's something. All right, the main issues of 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, we're going to uh, broadly deal with doctrine. So here we're going to deal with the disruption of false teachers and the grace of God toward sinners. That's chapter one, very broad strokes. Uh, the, the honeymoon period is over in the book of 1 Timothy. Um, Paul is dealing with something in every chapter. Chapter two, we're going to do a public worship, which is orderly prayer and the role of women. More disruption. There are disruptive women in the church. Chapter three, faithful officers, elders and deacons, Here is the order mechanism, the governing, controlling, shepherding, protecting, serving mechanism of the church to keep order. Chapter four, committed leadership. Timothy and his fellow elders are to be guards and examples for the flock. Why? Because there's disruption, and he's called to bring order. Chapter 5 is dealing with church finances. So you're dealing with benevolence and paying elders. Why? Cuz there's a disruption among the widows and there's complaints that pastors are being paid. Okay? So you got to deal with we're dealing with doctrine, worship, officers, leadership, finances, and then practical. Chapter 6 is is faithful living. So we're going to deal with contentment and humility and personal finances. Why? because there's disorder and disruption, and what is out of order needs to be brought back into order. And so what God is doing through Paul to Timothy in his house, we do in our own homes, right? We want an orderly home. No one sets out to have a chaotic home. Many of us just end up there. But how do you know how your house is out of order? One, you have to know where things belong. You have to know where something goes so you know if it's out of place. You have to know what belongs in your home and like, this doesn't belong here or this belongs over there. And so part of keeping an orderly home is taking what is, out, what is out of order and putting it into order. You must know what contributes to orderly functioning. You, know, you must know between the difference between something that belongs and doesn't belong. Something that needs to be put back and something that needs to be put to the curb. Now we all know if like a sock or a shirt is out of place, you put it in its place and now you've restored order. But if the milk has gone bad or the fruit is rotten, you throw it out. But if you don't know the difference, what does your house look like? So it is with the church. You have to know what needs to be put back in order, and what good order looks like, and what needs to be put to the curb. There are things like false teachers, false doctrine. They are like rotten fish, and spoiled milk that need to be put out to the curb. There are things like disruptive people that need to be put back in order and if not, they need to be put out to the curb because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if there is disruption and division and there's something rotting and you leave it in the house, the whole house will soon stink. God's household must be taught, protected, and ordered just like our own. What if we put the same energy and commitment to the household of God that we put to ours when special company comes over. That is one of the reasons why many of you are here is because you are special company. You've come in here and people have welcomed you in and and cared for you and, and brought you in and we pay as much attention to the order and purity of the church as we do to the hospitality and doctrine of the church. So now we get to Timothy. So, Christ's authority through Paul to Timothy. Timothy, my namesake, great compound phrase, Timotheos, honoring God. It's a great name. I commend it to all of you young parents. Great name. (laughs) Timothy is Paul's fellow worker in Romans 16. He's his beloved faithful child in 1 Corinthians 4. He was with Paul when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He's attributed in all of those as probably present in others. Timothy is a faithful son. Yet Timothy is a frail young man. One, he's young. Now there's a lot of question about young here. So, if you are to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. A lot of you young guys here want to be in ministry and think, oh, well, don't let him despise you for your youth. What is he, 20, 21? You know, we think young is like you guys in your 20s think it's your grown. No, you're not. Um, young here is probably f- mid-30s. If not late 30s. You are, still com- you are still considered a young man until your 40s. Don't let you, 35-year-old Timothy, be despised for your youth. Because the guys with gray hair and long, beautiful beards are not gonna trust a man with- who doesn't have much life experience. There is so much truth to that. Let me tell you something up front. We have a lot. We have a lot of sound theologians in here, but theology does not equal maturity. <laughs> Says the other pastor. I'll be honest with you. I've told a few guys this. It really is not until recently, in my 40s, that I've, I'm beginning to understand what it means to be a mature man in Christ. Within the last year or two, there are connections that are being made that have taken How long? uh, 15 years since I've been converted. There's no shortage for life experience, and even Timothy in his 30s is considered young. But he's also timid and frail. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11. All right. 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11. Yeah, I love the pages flipping. I've only got a couple more, I think. Three more. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. Why does Timothy need to be put at ease? I think when we read the scriptures, we think they're all superheroes. Timothy is not at ease. Let no one despise him, so he's not a man who commands respect. Help him on his way in peace. Paul is like a doting father with a fragile son. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Okay, maybe I haven't made my case. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it's interesting that I... For so long, read this in the plural. Um, this is one of our favorite reform passages, five twenty-three. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's in the singular. Timothy has frequent ailments. This guy in his mid-thirties has got some health issues, and he's timid, and he needs and he needs help. Yet he is faithful. He is a true son. Look at Philippians 2, 19 through 22. Just a couple books back to the left. Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy, his proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Timothy's qualification for ministry is not that he's big or strong or in good shape or even has all of his physical faculties about him. He is strong in the gospel. He is a faithful son. His faithfulness was put to the test when he was circumcised as an adult. That's hitting close to home. I love you, Lord, but man. He is stronger than most men in this room, and I'll be first in line out the other door. But it's not his strength or his age. It's his faith in the Lord. And as a true son, this is what adoption does to us. So that phrase carries weight because Timothy's a half-breed. Timothy's got a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He would not, allow, he would not be allowed to be brought into the assembly. That's why he needed to be circumcised. So when Paul says, Paul, the Jew of Jews, says he's my true son, that's how he views adoption. That in Christ Jesus, I have discipled him, I have cared for him, I have raised him up, and he is as true to me as a son if I had one from my own loins. And Paul never had children. That is how we view the church and the body of Christ. We are brothers. When you raise someone up in the faith, they become A son, a daughter in the faith. And Paul looks on him in pride. There's this union and adoption. I love the language of be thou my vision. Thou my great father and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I in thee one. If you are in Christ, you are a son of God. With all the full inheritance and riches of Christ. And this is how Paul commends him. He's my true son in the faith. And it is his faith that leads to his faithfulness. It is because of his faith, there's no one like him, that Paul commends him as he does. And so, if Paul is going to instruct and encourage his prized pupil, we should pay attention. And so, Timothy was called to labor among and over the sheep at Ephesus, And so as I read a letter like this and read the pastoral passages in the New Testament, this is a passion for me. And I know I can speak for Jesse on this. We talk about this all the time. This is humbling and overwhelming. How could you call me to this? How could you entrust your sheep to me? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know what I'm capable of? And I am so thankful to know many men who are committed to pastoral ministry like this. I'm blessed to meet with guys regularly who feel this weight and who understand what it means that Christ says, here's my lamb. Love it because you love me. But I fear that many more don't. So many love the title, love the office, love the job, it's a calling, perhaps, but not a singular devotion to shepherding Christ's flock. Who follow in Paul's passion for the church and Timothy and Titus' commitment. It is a high calling, as he tells Timothy at the end of the book that Jesse alluded to earlier. Chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That is the doctrine of the church, but that is also the church. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the, from the faith. He keeps the purity of the doctrine and the unity of the church. And he's called to know them like Christ knows his sheep. That is a high calling and that is a weight. And this is the call of every pastor, every elder like young David. I fought off lions, I fought off bears. I have fed the sheep, I have bound up the sick, I brought every one of them home and presented them to my father in better condition than he gave them to me. That is the pastoral charge. Present them in better case than they were handed, in better uh, state than they were handed to you without losing one. I also meet with many pastors who are proud that they are theologians, Great speakers, great managers, great administrators, great counselors. But if you're only that, with no love for the sheep, you don't know what it means to be a pastor. You completely miss the point. Because we have to do all those things. Not just when it suits us, not just when it's easy. If the sheep runs off and you're comfortable in bed, what do you do? John Piper wrote a whole book telling pastors, brothers, we are not professionals. Because many guys are more concerned with with theological or business strategies than the heart of a shepherd that is portrayed in the Scriptures. That is why Paul and Peter both called elders pastors. This is why we have no board elders here there is no option. You cannot lead if you are not a shepherd. If you do not walk with and love and care for the sheep, you cannot be a pastor here. You cannot be an elder here. I love my brothers in different traditions, but there is no biblical warrant for a guy who sits on a board and makes business decisions and never gets involved with the sheep. And if you're from that tradition, I'm sorry, but it's not in the scriptures. So, I intentionally saved a section from Proverbs as a segue. Proverbs 27. Spent so much time in Proverbs, what's one more reference? But I did save this for 1 Timothy. Notice the care and intention that is given to the shepherd in Proverbs. Proverbs 27, beginning in verse 23. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? You think he's talking about just sheep here? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the veget- vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of milk or price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance of your for your girls. There is a mutual relationship between shepherd and sheep. The sheep provide for the shepherd, and that's why when we get to chapter 5, we'll address that. But know well the care of your sheep, because these human sheep of God's flock are more valuable than gold. The seasons will come and go, but those who the Lord has entrusted to you are yours. Finally, we get to those, to all. Every church is different. We have different strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats. So, when we read New Testament Scriptures, when we read New Testament letters, this is our hermeneutic for all of Scripture, but especially for the pastorals. Only once you've understood divine inspiration, step one, the intention of the human author, step two, and the situation of the intended recipient, step three, can you then move on to the application of the Scriptures within the present context? Most Bible studies work the other way around. Let's open the Scriptures and say, what does this mean to me? It wasn't written to you. Amen. It is not your self-help book. There is lots of help in it. But the Holy Spirit command of God inspired pens of human authors to intended recipients, only once we understand that can we then apply it to ourselves. So many people get themselves into trouble like, look, I'm Moses, I'm Joshua. I'm going to part the Red sea. No, you're not. You're not the hero. You're the prostitute. <laughs> Hermeneutics step 10. So now that we've got all that, What does that mean for us? What does that mean to the church in Ephesus and the church today? A simple Trinitarian blessing. So let's look at that. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a Trinitarian blessing to all. If you are in Christ, if you are a member of the church anywhere, these three words are life-giving to you. And it shows us the work of our God. Something that every saint enjoys. One unified source, one unified flock. This is to the sheep, not the goats. The sheep are the people of God. Not the wolves in sheep clothing. Not the goats parading around as if they were sheep. But to the sheep, to the church, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, the Father's unmerited kindness, of saving and sanctifying sinners. Mercy, the son's sacrificial offering for forgiveness of sins in their place. Peace, the shalom, the wholeness of the spirit. Put you in perfect unity with the saints and with the God who saved you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Every church throughout every history Takes comfort in this throughout all of history. I love this song from Citizens. We sing it very often. Haven't sung in a while, and I uh, wish I would have remembered earlier. We could have closed with it. Um, in tenderness, these are on the screen. I know because I put them there myself. <laughs> Upon His grace, I'll daily ponder, and sing anew His praise. With all adoring wonder, his blessings I retrace. If you're in Christ, you are loved. You are bought with the blood of the spotless lamb. Do you ponder that? How often do you lay in your bed at night and look at the ceiling like, how could I be be loved that much? I don't deserve that grace. With all adoring wonder, his blessings I retrace. When you are discouraged, when your brothers and sisters are discouraged, we remind each other of the blessings we have in Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, um, the line before. I was on the next slide. I, I really got into that one. Um, it, that's on the next slide, I promise. Um, it seems as if eternal days are far too short to sing his praise. Have you ever just sat back and just praised the Lord for his grace and his mercy? Have you ever just rested in peace that passes understanding? Not that the world around you is at peace, but the idea of shalom is that you are whole. You are lacking nothing. Because even if all is stripped away, you have everything you need. Then we go on to the chorus. Oh, the love that sought me. Just lost it. Um, Oh, the blood. That bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me back to the fold of God. Grace that brought me to the fold of God. When we see the local church and membership in it, do we have the loving salvation of our triune God in mind? Do we see sheep that Christ died for and cared for? Do we see our brothers and sisters next to us as Christ sees us? as the Father sees us. They belong to my son. They are spotless because of his righteousness. Or do we just see the personality of the pastor or lack thereof, or the color of the carpet, or the style of music, or the color of the building, or anything external? Most of you do, and I love that. And it is heartbreaking when I see people who are so consumed with the external things, and they miss the gospel. They miss the pastoral heart of God for his people, and the pastors he's put in place that they be cared for and shepherded. My prayer is that we all know the grace, mercy, and peace of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, upon your grace I will daily ponder. Every day I will sing anew your praise. With all adoring wonder, your blessings I will retrace. And it seems as if eternal days are far too short to sing your praise. Oh, the love that sought me, drawing me a lost sheep to yourself. Oh, the blood that bought me, spilled by my Savior. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. My prayer is that you can pray that with me and rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.